Welcome to our podcast on change and transformation. My name is Andy Murray, the Executive Director of the Major Projects Association, and I'm uh, pleased to be joined by three of our speakers from a recent seminar we had where we looked at the pharma sector for inspiration about how other uh, organisations from outside our bubble of major projects go about change and transformation. So I'm joined by uh, Danny Duplessis, He's, who is the Executive Price, Vice President of Medical Affairs for Kiowa Kirin. So hello, Danny. Hello, great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Brilliant, look forward to our discussion. And I'm also joined by uh, Fraser McFarlane, VP of the Demerger uh, and Special Projects at GSK. Hi, Fraser. Hi, Andy. And Denise Moody, Chair of the Pharmaceutical Industry Project Management Group and Chief Operating Officer of Kuano. Hello, thank you for the invitation. Looking forward to the discussion. And Denise, a special thanks as well because uh, we reached across to your network and uh, you brought some people to join us for the day for our seminar, which enriched the uh, discussions that we had and bringing in different perspectives. So thank you also for our collaboration across our different networks. Um, so a bit of context to, to the event. As I mentioned, um, we wanted to have a discussion about change and transformation, but we wanted to have that in the context of pace and doing things quickly. And obviously, there's no sector that had to step up to that challenge more so uh, than the pharmaceutical sector when COVID came along and the rapid development of vaccines that were done in in a year or, or less that would otherwise take 10 years or more. Um, so we had lots to learn from uh, our uh, panel of, uh, of speakers and, and, uh, and we had some case studies as well from the Roslyn Franklin Laboratory that our members had the opportunity to visit as a part of a field trip. So before we go into um, some of the key points that came out of our seminar, um, Denise, I thought I would um, ask you a question, a bit of um, scene setting for us to characterise sort of the types of projects um, that the pharmaceutical sector has. So in my mind, I was thinking of new product development like the vaccines, um, but then we heard from Fraser and others, lots about sort of mergers and acquisitions and demergers, the integration happens afterwards. And then we also heard about sort of some facilities and the production side of pharma, but what, what characterizes those? Uh, I'd say what characterizes projects in the pharmaceutical industry is where a lot of us are doing our day job as well as being seconded onto a project team. In other industries, you're on a project team for two or three years. Um, for example, in pharmaceuticals, you could be working in early development, but seconded to three or four different projects and still having a line management role for your department. Um, so one of the things that differentiates the pharma industry from other industries is that multitasking from routine work and project management. And that causes pain points when people have to prioritize. Um, one of the other things that sort of, in my mind, sets us apart because we're constantly being innovative and we're having to uh, develop new things, we're having to use a combination of the traditional water waterfall principles and also agile. So we kind of vaguely know the framework but we also have to start um, having milestones, decision trees, phase gates, where we have to say, well, are we going to go left? Are we going to go right? Or are we going to can this project? 
So we have to be very agile, but still in this highly regulated industry, because if we don't have the required documentation um, that supports the drug development when we go to the authorities, we have to maybe undo 10 years of work and millions of pounds. Um, so it's that constant balancing of priorities. And um, again, as I mentioned on the day, it's making sure that we have that correct balance between business and science. Um, again, again, the vaccine was a, an amazing um, testament to this, where we were able to get the science to progress at a rate that suited the business need. Now, I will remind everybody that it was a pandemic, and these things don't happen every day. Um, but that was a huge um, success. And I would also like to pay uh, homage to the Unsung heroes. It wasn't just the development chemists, the development scientists, but the supply chain, the procurement. They managed to get a drug out on the market, you know, manufacturing-wise, warehousing-wise, logistically-wise, even getting the um, plastic containers that would house the vaccine. You know, usually that takes two or three years, but they were able to turn around everything super, super quick. And again, we wouldn't have been able to do that um, without the relationships that we had built with our third party suppliers. But again, just closing out uh, my comment, this was all because everybody had that worldwide global vision to save lives. And so everybody went that extra mile. Yeah, and you had that unifying sort of call yes. to action as well. So I'll come on to that in, in a moment. That gives me a really nice sort of link to to Fraser. But I just want to reflect on a couple of things you 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 covered there because one of the surprises for me on the day was the amount of agile terms that I was coming across. Now I've worked with agile in product development elsewhere and you know and, and in different sectors outside of major projects. But it was just quite prevalent in the discussions that you were having on projects that can take you 10 years. And it sort of it felt a little counterintuitive that we were having a discussion about agile on long term projects. But it was great. Some of the examples that were offered and provided about, you know, the concepts of these decision gates. You're talking about the fail fast mentality, the minimum viable product we heard from the Roslyn uh, Franklin Laboratory, the, they turned that into project management itself with the concept of minimum viable data in order to make the critical decisions that, that they would need to make to keep that project operating at pace. So, um, you know, uh, the, the, the detailed report will be coming out. So for people who weren't able to attend, I, I do recommend uh, people, you know, getting a hold of our full report from it because there were so many lessons, I think, about how we can apply Agile to uh, major projects in a way that perhaps doesn't seem obvious at, at sort of first principle and a little plug we will be um, looking at this topic later in the year uh, in September so Karina Singh from the IPA will be hosting a fail fast evening discussion for this very topic about how we can um, apply that thinking to major projects so Fraser I would like to to come to you um, because you kicked off uh, um, sort of on our first panel and for you when you were talking about transformation uh, you said the the priority uh, and sort of the the cornerstone is a clear focus about what it is that we need to achieve. And you gave us a great quote, which a uh, report writer was delighted to include in our in a report. And I'll just see if I can find it in the report in front of me, um, which is organisations die of indigestion rather than starvation. So you very much sort of put 
the discussion about transformation and change at what I would call the portfolio level yeah. around making sure you're doing the right change rather than necessarily doing the change in the right way. So I just really want to give you a chance to sort of um, add to that in terms of the importance of that focus and also about the alignment to what, what are the priorities of the organisation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you, Andy. I, I mean, um, the pharmaceutical industry, as as Denise said, it, it is different in in some ways. So, uh, a couple of things I would also say is that um, most of the projects we work on die; they never get to anywhere. They 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 will fail. Um, uh, but we are also highly competitive. But when we get our projects, and I'm talking more medicines here, they they don't last forever. They will come off patent and somebody else will make them at, at, at a 25th of the price uh, and and therefore we do not gain the benefit uh, from the sales of those products long term so the pharmaceutical industry is is a challenge so we will have multiple projects that will die we have very few projects that will get to success and as denise said we will spend billions on them so it is important for the pharmaceutical to look at that, that portfolio just to make sure what is the overall goals of the company what are the goals for the company financially but also from an uh, environmental and uh, man woman kind perspective so that, uh, in the end of the day it is all about patients but if there's a number of patients that are getting cures or treatments for medicines then ultimately that will also lead to a financial component to the company so it is important uh, it's important to use the same information to assess all of those projects. Uh, I think the thing people forget about the most is the amount of resources that you put into those need to be assessed, not just uh, in real time actuals, but also forecast to see what the long term impact is. Because as my quote says, uh, an organization, if they are not able to execute on those own individual projects will ultimately fail because what you're wanting to do is pick your pet projects or your critical projects and put as much resource behind them as possible. As Denise said, the pharmaceutical industry is, is, a, is an industry of multitasking, but COVID was just exactly the same. We did not put any of our other clinical trials for all of our life-saving medicines on hold. We had to do this on top of, but what we were able to do was put our organizations and those externally to us to prioritize, but the only way we were able to do that was to identify what capabilities and what skills and resources that we needed. So it is very much around an assessment uh, at, at, and a, on a continual basis, because as Denis and you have both said about those stage gates, um, every day part of your portfolio will change. Either an external assumption that has been made has changed, or you gain greater uh, um, confidence that your projects or your medicines will go forward or therefore you may also have the opposite you may have data that points to the fact that you may not has be as confident so you have to be able to identify how much resources are going to be um, kind of consumed by your medicines and the portfolio but also know what the impact is so that if you have new projects that come in uh, what would you have to terminate sorry to say it, mm -hmm. terminate to accommodate some of those critical projects. Uh, so um, it, is a, it's a, it is a fine balance. Um, I can't say the industry always gets it right and, and, and individual companies sometimes have pet projects that they want to go after because they believe they can change um, kind of medical care. 
Uh, I think the oil and gas industry is probably a, a similar one for us in how many uh, things actually become a success and how much of a portfolio you need to balance. But ultimately, you want a, a balanced portfolio of early projects, high probability uh, projects, as well as those that will take two years versus seven or eight years uh, to ultimately benefit patients, and because uh, that's what the pharmaceuticals are here to do. And that sort of prioritization that you're talking about. So so the, the concept there, because you know, often in major projects we come from this concept that all projects must succeed and they must get mm -hmm. to the final conclusion. But you're talking about portfolio where perhaps the hit rate might be one in twenty, one in hundred, or, or I guess far yeah, worse. Keep going, keep going, <laughs> yeah. keep going. Yeah. So got to keep going to the, the one in the large number. Um but but the uh, the prioritization isn't just about the viability of the project work there, but also what's going on in your external environment with perhaps competitor activity or just absolutely. the nature of the market that that product might go into. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, as a, as I'm sure is in the capital projects that are, are done in the, the the rest of of you know u k industry, um things will change. Um, and you may start a project where you are fifth in the market. I expect to be fifth in the market, and but then two years you could end up being the market leader if things go well, because others may fall down or, or hit hurdles that you may not. So I, your decision making needs to be nimble, as we kind of talked about earlier on, uh, and to look at all of those factors uh, to ultimately make decisions. But uh, you know, as we spoke about on the day getting good decision making, getting single points of accountability to make those decisions is also critical. And that is the same whether it's a change project, an infrastructure project or a drug project. Good, strong decision making uh, that allows you to focus and being brave enough to say, actually, this one's not going to work or we need to agile and move and, and, and modify what the overall target is and the ability to quickly uh, uh, redeploy or apply, apply resources to changes is probably where you'll see the most effective organizations. And remember that uh, uh, the average project drug development takes between 10 and 15 years. So that's a lot of time for external forces to force you to reevaluate things. And is that, Denise, I guess that's the, um, the average project to to success because the, exactly. the average would be much less yes. if, you're, if you're quitting at three months in. Because And, uh, and, and just to, to again uh, re-emphasize the pressure that Fraser was talking about, you want to patent your development as soon as possible. Patent only lasts 20 years. So if you patent in the first five years, you then are have the pressure of getting it to market so you can maximize that first to market. And normally hmm. it equates to about five to seven years on average. And then, as Fraser says, your generic comes in and, you know, the price falls off a cliff and um, there could be up to 25 generics in, in an average market. So there is a lot of pressure for the scientists to hurry up and get the job done. Um, but we have to balance that with, you know, having a safe drug to market that meets all the regulatory requirements. But, but okay, sounds like a... Can I go on, Danny? Please, please come in. So, so, so two things that I want to just briefly comment on. So, so when I joined the industry thirty years ago, right, there was sort of this rule of thumb that I that was shared with me at the time that there might be uh, a thousand potential molecules, chemical entities, 
of which maybe a hundred would be decided to actually progress somewhat. Ten might end up in a human being and one might come to the market, right? So sort mm -hmm. of the nature of the beast. I think what has changed, though, is speed. I mean, technology and all sorts of other things that we're not going to go into has actually, I think, gotten us to a point where we could actually say no quicker. And Denise, to your point of 10 to 15 years, yeah, that's what I grew up with as well. But we know it can be quicker. We've seen yeah. that, right? Yes. And that that is the biggest challenge, I think, in pharma now is not to fall back in the way we used to do things, but to actually learn and see what can we do quicker? How do we do things concurrently rather than sequentially, as an example? How do we actually get so much quicker in uh, getting the right amount of data that we need, right? We don't have to necessarily wait for for patients to go into a surgery once every six months or once a year. Actually, they don't maybe have to travel and maybe we can get it sooner or whatever. I mean, there's a whole host of things uh, that I think we can learn from and we should, we should do it quicker. Otherwise, we haven't learned anything in a very long time. Let's follow up on that, Danny, because uh, one of the things that um, I took from, you know, the the seminar and the sort of the exchanges of conversation that, that the panelists had, whereas I sort of, you know, perhaps uh, overly narrowed <laughs> Fraser's contribution around prioritisation and, and doing the right uh, projects. But certainly one of the things I, I got from, from your contribution was the focus on doing those projects in the right way, which is what you've just been sort of uh, highlighting there about challenging the way you do things, challenging the interface with the um, with, with the regulator to getting approvals and so on. And sort of uh, in my notes, I scribbled, you know, you kept on talking about the people and bringing the people with you. So in terms of that change aspect, it feels, you know, that from your top tips for change, transformation and working at pace, it's still down mostly to the to the people aspects. Is that a fair reflection of, of your yes, thoughts? Yes, I, I think it is. I think it is, Andy. And, and, and again, it, there might be slight differences between a development project for, for a medicine or a device uh, or, you know, some diagnostic versus a change project, right? And I think for both of that, the, the team needs to be on board, of course, but I think it's even more important when, when we're actually talking about some change project of, of sorts. Um, people do need to really um, have bought into the reason for change, the why. Mm -hmm. What is gonna be different for them, either directly or indirectly? And I think, you know, what, what I've been reflecting also after the conversation on the day around how easy it is to at some point get into this habit of chasing the milestones and forgetting the bigger picture of why are we doing this? I don't think one can ever over communicate that. Checking in with your people. Are we on board? Yes. OK, this milestone is at risk. Just let's take a step back. How important is this in the bigger scheme of things, right? Is this going to be rate limiting? Let's keep in mind why we're doing this uh, and really just have that balanced conversation rather than you said Tuesday, it's Wednesday and it's not done. Maybe it doesn't matter, actually. Um, so so that I think is really important to to have people engaged, to acknowledge the the impact of of the change, right, on the individuals, whether it's a change curve or whether it's just, you know, I don't know, being human, you can go as theoretical as you want to, 
but it has an impact on people and people go through that acceptance of change at, a, at different rates. Uh, and as leaders, we need to acknowledge that and we need to help people that and we need to acknowledge that ourselves, uh, we also go through that. And sometimes we do actually fall back. We think, you know, is this really worth it? So, um, yeah, just being human and acknowledging it. Yeah, and that was really interesting that what came up on the day. There was, uh, I think that the five C's were um, offered as a as a framework. I think it started with us four, and then we had a fifth from someone in the you know in, in attendance. So we had the importance of communications. And Danny, what I think you're just saying there, it's it's two ways. So it's not just a case of explaining mm. the why and the reason, but also checking in to check yes. that people have uh, are digesting that, understanding that, and uh, and are still in the same place as when you last. You know, checked up uh, and checked in with them. Um, then there was important to collaboration, and I think Denise, you covered that right at the beginning in terms of um, with the the vaccine uh, challenge for the for COVID. It wasn't just the, the 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 medicine side of it; it was the whole supply chain. So you were developing a capability, not just a product yes. that came out of that, and that needed that collaboration uh, as well. And then there was the co-creation, co-delivery which is, you know, making things very inclusive and people buy into things when they co-create and co-deliver. Uh, and then consistency came up uh, as, uh, and, and, and I guess this is where the sort of internal change, business change is slightly different from the new product development, because where you might have that 1,000 molecules to 100 uh, to 10 to 1, it's a bit like, I guess, a, a horse race where you will start off and halfway through 10 people turn up on motorbikes and and then the finish line moves. And so so that that's not consistent. But I guess you have a sector where people are used to and familiar with that. But for internal change, you can't have that thousand to 100 to 10 to 1. You've got to have some consistency there. Uh, I think that's that came across as perhaps a key differentiator between different types of projects there. Um, Fraser, you look like you. you yeah, to, well, no, I was just going to say um, consistency is important. So so just like large infrastructure projects that we would have, Crossrail has been a good example. A, a drug project, you get people come and go. Uh, you know, if, it, if it's taking five to 15 years to get a drug on the market and that's it, a successful one, you'll probably find that your project team changes significantly over time, mm -hmm. constantly uh, on a constant basis. So that's why some consistency of message and consistency of communication and clear um, kind of true north of each project is critically important because you, you've got to get the individual team members on board, whether it's a change project or a drug project. And so that's, I think, another reason why consistency of approach and consistency of communication and, and clarity of that is critically important because you will continue to have changes of, of your core team on an ongoing basis because these projects aren't two weeks, two months. And in addition to that, you have the added complication that we have different phases. So we have early development and then we have uh, animal or phase one studies. And then we have sort of stability studies and manufacturing capabilities and analytical studies. And that's different teams. And then you have the clinical trials, which is a different team. And then you're going to have the pre-marketing guys who have to talk to um, reimbursement um, facilities and organizations around the world. And then you have to look at packaging for the various languages and what markets are you going to re release it to. So in addition to the this very long duration, you have multiple teams involved and it's like a mar like um, a relay race. And mm -hmm. if you don't hand over successfully to the next team, 
some of the yeah. key learnings are going to fall between stools and that makes the next phase of the race even more challenging. Um, and so communication is super, super important. And I think, you know, many of our members who come from infrastructure backgrounds will really relate to that sort of uh, relay race uh, analogy there. So, so thank you for that. Um, that consistency um, that we were discussing, what also came up on the day was uh, in, in terms of focusing on change for the individual, this this people focus that we had was that change isn't necessarily positive for everyone. Um, and we need to just recognise that and, and not try and dress it up as something that it isn't and, and just take that head on. Uh, and I think, Danny, you, you talked about um, understanding why the change is important. What does it mean for me as an individual? And what does it mean in the long term? And that is also true of other major projects. So if we were to build a railway from point A to B, it's potentially beneficial from those living around point A and those living around point B, but not necessarily for the people in between that, that may be disrupted you know, whilst it's being constructed. So, so we have the same conversations going on, I think, for all major projects. So I just thought uh, we, we haven't got sort of long left on, on our podcast uh, today, but perhaps we can just offer, you know, ask for some top tips in terms of how how do we go about communicating uh, projects and change to people when it's not necessarily positive or beneficial for everyone who, who may be impacted? Well, I'm happy to go first. I think it is incredibly important to be authentic and honest, right? Um, because to your point, and this is specifically when there's change that may have an impact on people's uh, roles that we actually see from time to time, and not only in pharma, of course, we see it in many other companies as well, where there's uh, changes and then suddenly you hear there's going to be layoffs of some sort. Um, and, and we just need to be 100% honest and authentic uh, about that, of course, with empathy, right? And uh, I think many of us, if not all of us, have actually lived through that ourselves, which does make a huge difference, right? So I have for sure. So when that arises, um, it's a, it's easy to actually say, well, I can imagine how you feel because I have gone through that as well. And that really is important to, to acknowledge that uh, with the team. So that's my top tip. Be, remain honest, authentic and, and have empathy. Andy, I, I can't, I'm happy to go next. Uh, I mean, honesty would have been my first one. So Danny uh, had, had taken that, but we, we talked about that openly at, at the, the conference the other week. I mean, I think for me, Three for me is everyone's different. So everyone receives change in a different way. Everyone internalizes that change in a different way. And if you do not have a modified approach, it won't land. So that's the first one. The second one is you've got to be continuous about it. Because if you are going through a change and going through the change curve, as Danny described earlier on, you're going to think differently at the top of the curve than you are at the bottom of the curve. So you're going to have different questions. So again, it's got to be a continuous piece. And the third one for me is focus. Um, I, I mentioned it on the day of, you know, Demerger was one of the projects that I've just led from a GSK, one of the largest in European uh, stock market history in, in recent years. We had an individual person who was fully dedicated to change and the impact of change from day one when we set the team up years ago, not brought in with six months to go, oh, we better prepare that change right from day one. So focus, 
that has to be a priority as well of, of change. That one has to have a priority. So give it equal priority, because if you don't, you will miss the people component of that change, whether it's the individuals on the project or the people that will be impacted. Because don't forget, a lot of our change projects, the people on the project are also going to be impacted by that change. I'm going to really summarise what my two colleagues have said. You need a <laughs> communication plan. You really, really do. And I think people say, oh, we'll worry about it later. But from the beginning, you need to figure out who you're going to communicate to. What's the messaging that you need to be personalizing for those various groups? Who are your advocates? How are you going to get people on the ground speaking your language? Then you want to talk about what's the frequency of your messaging. To over communicate is as bad as under communicating. And then last but not least, in this modern technology world, you need to pick and choose your platforms for those delivery of the messaging, depending on your audience and depending on the frequency. Great, and there's so much to unpack and take away from those three uh, sort of top tips there that um, I might have to um, pause, rewind and, and listen to those again to uh, to get the most from it so um that was a, a great way i think to, to sort of bring this to to a close um other than uh, fraser I, i'm now really curious in terms of you know, a bit of a background for in terms of methods and frameworks and, and best practice but demerges um has all the characteristics of a co-owned project where the co-owners don't exist when you start out so uh, i've got lots of curiosity in terms of how you go about codifying best practice for demerges but there you go <laughs> uh, and you're, you're absolutely right because because just like some reorganizational projects half of the team you start with are not with you after after it um and and so as we were saying earlier teams go through that change too 